from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I am Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 14th. Today, pilots say that Boeing ignored their concerns about the 737 Max. Why politicians keep talking about socialism and a global climate strike. Our hearts go out to all of those who lost loved ones, to their friends, to their families, in both the Ethiopian and the Lion Airlines crashes that involved the 737 Max aircraft.、Uh, it's a terrible, terrible thing.、Uh, Boeing is an incredible company. They are、uh, working very, very hard right now. The U.S. has now joined the U.K., Canada, Mexico, China, and dozens of other countries in grounding Boeing's 737 Max 8 aircraft. This comes after Sunday's Ethiopian Airlines crash that killed everyone on board. It was the second time in six months that this model of 737 has crashed shortly after takeoff. Now, crash investigators are racing to figure out what went wrong. And on Wednesday, the Federal Aviation Administration announced that at least one critical clue has been found. They reported that they have found something in the wreckage. We don't know what it is yet, but they think that it indicates some commonality between the Lion Air plane crash that killed 189 people in Indonesia at the end of October and the Ethiopian Airlines crash that killed 157 just this Sunday. Aaron Gregg is a business reporter for the Post. This is something that basically anybody who is associated with Boeing had been saying, "Oh my God, we hope there's nothing that ties these two together," which would basically implicate Boeing in potential equipment issues. Now we know there is something tying it together. Whether it's Boeing's fault yet to be determined, but this is a very serious crisis for the company because the commonality between that Lion Air crash and this Ethiopian Airlines crash is the fact that they were using the same new model of plane. That's right. This is the 737 Max 8. It's basically the newest version of a long-standing 737 that's been used since the 60s. The idea that a brand new plane in Indonesia—it was literally brand new in Ethiopia—had been in flight for just a couple of months would have potential equipment issues is very worrying. It, it suggests there's something wrong with the plane and not with the people who are maintaining it. So you've been reporting on the concerns about this model of airplane, and one of the things that you've reported is that there was a meeting after that Lion Air crash back in last November, and that meeting was between Boeing and a pilots union. Tell me more about that meeting. So according to the pilots, basically it was sort of a coming together where Boeing was basically saying. Look, we want to give you all the information that we have about what's in this system. The pilots who were in that meeting that I spoke with said that before that they were very, very upset with Boeing. This all sort of hurtled into public view when Boeing disclosed that they had put a new system in the 737 Max 8 called MCAS. Basically, it's an automated system that, in certain dangerous situations, can nudge the nose of the plane downward. There is a way to override it.、Uh, it's just that pilots were concerned that they had not been properly trained on how to do so, and they were worried that that may have played a role in the Indonesian crash. 
if you're a pilot, you're very, very worried about the idea that you might not have control of the plane in a critical moment. So this disclosure basically threw the American pilot unions into a little bit of a frenzy. The two airlines in the U.S. that have these planes are Southwest and American Airlines. So they immediately basically raised their voices and said, we're not okay with this. Why was this not included in training? A pilot I talked to yesterday told me that the training for this new plane consisted of a one-hour-long iPad course. That was how they were trained on the new plane. What do you know about what was discussed at that meeting? The pilots basically came to that meeting and said, here are a few things that we would like to be changed. Three of them were very specific technical aspects of how they would they think that the plane should be changed. First and foremost, that when the system kicks in, it shouldn't nudge the plane's nose all the way downward if it's designed to prevent a stall. But their first demand was just, this needs to be included in training. They asked for flight simulators. They still don't have those, according to the pilots I'm talking to. That's been in the works for several months. Now, I don't know how long it takes to make a new flight simulator, but it's been four months and they still don't have them. It wasn't until after this second crash that Boeing and the FAA came out and said, okay, we are going to update the system on the MAX 8. There were very specific software changes that were announced Monday evening. And basically at the same time, in a little bit of an about face, they also said, we're going to add new training here. There's going to be new crew training for this system. After initially thinking basically, well, the MAX 8 isn't that different from the older 737s. We don't need to do much retraining there. So the pilots are making the case that that FAA update and Boeing's subsequent announcement really came from the discussions that started in that meeting. So these pilots are saying that they're concerned that they weren't being trained properly on this new plane software. Whose job is it to enforce that or to make sure that pilots are properly trained? So one point that Boeing will probably make here is that what they did as far as putting the training together and setting up the software for the new plane, that was all approved by the FAA. I'm not aware of any evidence that suggests that Boeing ignored any government policies in doing what it did. I think next the magnifying glass is going to be on the FAA for why they certified the plane the way they did. So right now, there's not actually an administrator in charge of the FAA. There's an acting administrator, but there's no permanent person in the top job. Do you think that that has anything to do with the fact that there has been so much criticism of the FAA's response to all of this? I would say there's some possibility that that has played a role in their response to the crash. But the other thing that it is important to remember is that this plane has been dreamed up for years. This is something that Boeing has been preparing for a very, very long time. It's not the case that this process would have happened within the last year or so. So I would say that the fact that there's no confirmed FAA administrator, it might account for any slowness on the part of FAA to respond after Lion Air. But I think it would be highly unlikely that that contributed to how the certification or the training happened on the 737 MAX 8. Aaron Gregg is a business reporter for The Post. The black boxes recovered from the Ethiopian Airlines crash site are now in France for review. The National Transportation Safety Board is sending agents to aid with the investigation there. It could take as long as a month to recover that data.
Conservative activists met earlier this month for a huge gathering just outside of Washington, D.C. It's called CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. And they meet every year, usually with a lot of prominent Republican speakers in their lineup. And hello, CPAC! I actually started quite a while ago in CPAC. I was particularly struck by some remarks that President Trump had made. I'm Glenn Kessler. I'm editor and chief writer of The Fact Checker. Glenn started noticing this trend. Democrat lawmakers are now embracing socialism. They want to replace individual rights with total government domination. It wasn't wasn't just Trump. It was just about everyone there. America will never be a socialist country. You had comments by Mike Pence. And then you had uh, Larry Kudlow, the chief economic advisor for the White House, say... Join President Trump and me and the rest to put socialism on trial. You can see that the Republicans are planning to run a campaign in 2020 where they accuse Democrats in general as wanting to impose socialism on the United States. Having seen how at this, you know, conference of activists that they were really pressing hard on this idea of socialism. I thought, you know, probably a lot of Americans are, like, wondering, what is socialism? Glenn was not wrong about that. A Gallup poll last year asked Americans to define what socialism is. About a quarter of Americans said that it stood for equality in rights and distribution of wealth. 17% said that it was about government ownership or control of businesses. 10% said that it meant social services were free. And 6% said that it was being social, talking to people and getting along with each other. So what exactly is socialism? There's the traditional economic definition, you know, which stems from the middle of the 19th century, which Karl Marx once expressed as, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Wait, what does that mean? You should essentially make a more equal society, spread the wealth. If there are people that have a tremendous amount of wealth and because they're particularly able, they should be able to help people who are not as able to help themselves. So you spread around the work and you spread around the wealth. Right. Just to back up, socialism came about the concept in response to some of the horrific things that were going on during the Industrial Revolution which was, you know, capitalism run amok. So you had people working 16-hour days, seven days a week. You had horrible conditions in the factories. So in order to make a more equal, just society, socialism was designed to say, well, look, if you're the factory owner, the owner of production, and you're exploiting the people, you owe more to those people than simply exploiting them for their labor. And you can see there are things in... Today in the United States, the United States is a capitalist country, but there are things that are clearly derived from socialist theory. What is the evolution of socialism in the United States? Well, there was a a period where the Socialist Party in the United States was actually a strong enough party that it had one of the main presidential contenders, where you had the head of the Socialist Party, Eugene Debs, votes And he was up against Woodrow Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt and the incumbent, William Howard Taft. Of course, that's the election that Woodrow Wilson won. 
there's often an action and reaction in politics. And so the Socialist Party gained a lot of support and votes. So the other parties started to borrow some of those ideas. Hmm. And that's where, you know, the response of the Democratic Party and Franklin D. Roosevelt and the introduction of Social Security, you borrow those ideas and you make them your own. And then, of course, that, that third or fourth party becomes less appealing. Which, to be honest, sounds kind of similar to what could be happening now in terms of the Democratic Party adopting what was previously known as kind of more socialist ideas. Exactly. Because this is how parties obviously change and evolve. And the same thing with Medicare. And before Medicare and Social Security, becoming old in the United States for many people was a really difficult situation. And they were dying because they were not getting health care. And those two systems, which are now relatively popular, they were criticized as socialist when they were first introduced. Right. There's a great speech by Ronald Reagan. We can say right now that we want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms. Who was talking about how Medicare was basically the path to socialized medicine. And at the moment, the key issue is we do not want socialized medicine. And of course, 20 years later, when he was president, he... He worked to expand Medicare. And in a moment, I will sign the Medicare Catastrophic Coverage Act of 1988. This legislation will help remove a terrible threat from the lives of elderly and disabled Americans. So when we talk about socialism as it exists in reality today, what are the different ways in which socialism appears in the world? This is part of the reason why it's so easy for people to make caricatures about, out of socialism. There is the countries in Northern Europe, Sweden, Denmark, they're often looked upon as socialist. They would disagree with that, but they do have policies that are designed to make more equal societies. So, for instance, they have something that a lot of self-proclaimed American socialists say they want to have, which is free college education. Socialism also has manifested itself in Venezuela. Technically, it's the Socialist Party of Venezuela. That's evolved into a kind of a dictatorship. It doesn't necessarily mean that the socialism part of it is bad. So the people that are decrying socialism will often point to instances when the governments became one-party rule. does not mean that's what socialist is. There have been other socialist presidents and socialist governments in South America which have worked perfectly fine. You mentioned the Democratic Socialists of America. It's not a party, but it's a political organization, they want to have universal health care like the British healthcare system, you know, where the doctors work for the government. But, you know, the United Kingdom is a pretty capitalist country. London is one of the centers of worldwide finance. So again, you can't make the easy cut and dried thing like this is a socialist country. There is no such thing as a purely socialist country, at least how it was envisioned in the middle of the 19th century. So now, how do we see socialism and discussion about socialism play into the political landscape? I'm afraid it's not going to be a particularly enlightening debate. Already you see the Republicans painting, you know, the so-called socialism of the Democrats as akin to Venezuelan socialism, which is not the case. No one in the Democratic Party that I'm aware of that is discussing, you know, one-party rule and that sort of thing. At the same time, among Democrats, I think they're going to try to avoid that socialist label, 
enlist of Bernie Sanders, who has long been a proud socialist, or what he says now, a democratic socialist. And they're going to try to tamp down the idea that they're actually doing anything that's particularly radical. Do you feel like the term socialist or socialism is still a useful term, or that the usages have moved so far away from the bare basics definition that it doesn't really communicate anything meaningful? It hasn't meant what it's supposed to mean for a long time. Socialism means what you want it to mean. And in the case of people like Bernie Sanders, it's a way to say, I'm envisiting a more just, equal society. And what democratic socialism is about is saying that it is immoral and wrong that the top one-tenth of one percent in this country own almost as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent. You know, the Nordic countries in Europe, they're among the highest standards of living and and they're rated among the happiest populations. And I think we should look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway and learn from what they have accomplished for their working people. Those are some of the principles that I believe in. They don't have the kind of income extremes that you have in the United States. And so it's a way of saying that's my vision for the world, as opposed to saying I want to take over everyone's factories and have everyone working for the U.S. government. Glenn Kessler is the editor and chief writer for The Post's Fact Checker. One more thing. Teenagers who are tired of waiting for adults to do something about climate change are taking matters into their own hands. They are skipping school on Friday for strikes and rallies in nearly 100 countries. Post reporters talk to some of those kids here in the U.S. These kids are from all over the country, all parts of the country. They're quite a diverse group of kids that we talk to, and I call them kids. Some of them are adults. They're 18. Some of them are much younger, 13 or so, 14, 15. My name is Philoquan Charlemagne. I'm a 17-year-old activist here in Florida. I'm Brady Dennis, and I'm a national environmental reporter for The Post. I was born on a small island in the Caribbean called St. Thomas, which has time and time again experienced the effects of the climate crisis. What stuck with me in talking to a lot of the young people who were planning these strikes is they all had this sense of urgency and the sense that the world needs to act now and that if The generations that came before us won't do that, then we will. So the reason that I'm participating in this year's climate strike, holding a rally at the Phoenix Capitol building, is because I believe that climate change ultimately affects communities. Hi, my name is Isabella Falahi. I'm 15 years old and I'm the lead organizer of the U.S. climate strike in Indiana. And I'm here to tell you right now that although I'm in the snow, climate change and global warming is still a threat. And for 15 people die every day right here in California's South Coast Air District due to our horrendous air quality. My name is Jesse Parks and I'm a 17-year-old climate activist and I'll be striking March 15th at California's state capitol My name is Serafina Foreman, I'm 16, and I'm from Western Massachusetts. I'm striking because I'm one of the tens of thousands of young people across the globe 
skipping school to disrupt the status quo and show to our world leaders that we can't continue business as usual and we can't ignore science. The leverage they have is in numbers. They're very savvy when it comes to organizing over social media. And so I think that this has become a way to collectively be heard, whereas one teenager in one state is swimming against the tide and trying to get the attention of anyone in a position to make decisions on climate change. But in collectively organizing, not just across the United States, but across the world, really, in 90 or 100 countries, I think we last counted, I think they they strengthen their voice. The reasons I'm striking, for one, is because I'm really frustrated with, uh, with the fact that the previous generations knew that climate change is an issue, the science has been around, but they chose not to address the problem and to pass it down, down the line to next generations, and now it's landed on us. This originated in a really interesting way, which is with this young girl in Sweden, Greta Thunberg, who began to protest last August outside her nation's parliament and, you know, has done so, I think, for 29, maybe 30 weeks now, and has become a sort of international celebrity of, of sorts. And her example has sparked these other strikes. You know, this one girl outside the Swedish parliament has sort of snowballed into a global movement. And really the, the main question, I think, is not how many young people may come out or whether this will continue, but can they force the hand of world leaders to actually take action when a lot of other things haven't? And I think that's a question that remains. Brady Dennis is a national environmental reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.